Father, thank you that we can come to you this morning as our Heavenly Father who loves us. As we learnt last week and as the kids were learning, the, the one who can't stop blessing his people. Thank you that you love to give your people good gifts. And so we pray that you would help us this morning as we come to this end of Numbers. We pray you'd help us as we seek to get something of an overview and see why Numbers ends in this way. As we seek to understand what this passage means for us and as we look ahead to see our inheritance in the Lord Jesus. Speak to us please. Open blind eyes, soften hard hearts. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. A few times over this series in Numbers, I've had the extraordinary misfortune and general bad luck to spend time in a circular car park that goes around London. Sometimes people refer to it as the M25. You may have been there. Each time as I've sat there tapping the steering wheel, trying to be calm and patient and generally godly, or at least to give that impression of it, I've wondered if the Lord, in his sovereign kindness, has given me just a brief taster of what it must have been like for this, this numbers generation as they wandered through the wilderness. Constant stop-starts and delays. Extreme frustration. Stupid people around me in different vehicles. Moaning and grumbling and complaining from within the car. And are we nearly there yet? And has anyone got any water? And why have you brought us to this wretched place? Why didn't we stay at home? Are you serious? That's all the food we have? Are you sure you know where we're going? And anyway, who put you in charge? (laughs) And of course, coupled with that, if you stay on the M25 long enough, probably about 20 probably about 40 years later, sorry, you end up where you first started as well. So I wonder if the M25 is a good metaphor for our journeys in numbers. It's an unusual book, isn't it? We have to be honest about that. As we reach the final chapter of this book with perhaps an unsurprisingly unusual ending. It's unusual. The book started with a vast and careful list of people. And it quickly moved into a plans and template for a campsite, recording how these people were to travel and how they were to camp and set down camp and set up camp overnight on their way to the land that God has promised to one of their ancestors many hundreds of years before. It's unusual because it's been painfully honest, awkward at times, honest and upfront about these people. They say history is written by the winners, but you look at the numbers generations and we're not so sure. And then 40 years later, they've still not learnt. They're still making the same kinds of mistakes again and again and again. And so maybe it is rather fitting to have something of an unusual end as we reach the end of this unusual book. It's definitely not a Disney happily ever after fairy story as we finish, riding off into the sunset and everyone's happy. They've not quite arrived yet. They've actually not quite reached their destination yet. And perhaps that appeals to something of the cynicism of our of our culture, of our nature. There's a whole load of questions for us to deal with, like, how are they going to get across the Jordan? Like, what about these fortified cities you see? Jericho is just there, for example. Like, who's going to lead them? Because we know it's not going to be Moses. The Lord has promised that, but Moses is still there. In fact, we know it's going to be Joshua who's going to receive the baton. How's that going to happen? There's lots of dot, dot, dots 
It's not as tidy as we would like. Before we dive into chapter 36, I want to try and give us something of an overview of the entire book and then the last 10 chapters in particular, which might be um, a bit naive, but we'll give it a go. If you remember, the two of the big structural markers in Numbers have been these two censuses. There's one in chapter 1, but another one in chapter 26 is second generation. And these past 10 chapters or so in Numbers, 26 through to 36, they record details of this second generation. And if we'd read them, I'm sure you're very familiar with them, they would have shown us something of this second generation of Israelites and what they're like. And we'll see they are a hopeful people. It's something of a contrast to the first generation. Maybe I need to back up further, though, if you're just visiting us or you're thinking, what am I doing here? What is he talking about? We've been traveling with the people of God. God has promised his people a land, and yet they got stuck in Egypt, and so he rescued them from Egypt, and they're going through the wilderness to give them their inheritance 48 times, at least in English, In the book of Numbers, the word inheritance comes up. And to say it's been a constant battle for them to believe God in providing this inheritance for them would be an understatement. So in a sense, it's been an encouraging time because we've seen the reality of a messy life lived in the now and the not yet of salvation. There are people who have been rescued like us. But they've not enjoyed the final consummation of God's salvation, of his rescue. And so they experience the the frustrations, as, as we do, but hope and encouragement too. Right the way through, we've seen he doesn't leave them alone. God is with them in the midst of their trials and their journeying, at the heart of their community life. We've seen he speaks to them through his servant Moses. He's not a God who is dumb, but one who loves to speak to his people. He's provided a means for them to know him through the sacrifices, through the tabernacle, through the tent of meeting. Do you remember the water of purification that we talked about? And we said as well that their situation is something of a mirror for us because because it, it shows us what we're like. But it shows us too how much we need Christ and how profoundly thankful we should be for Christ. Why? Because he is the one who trusted God where the people did not He is the one who is faithful in the wilderness where the people were not. He is the one who has secured the promised land for his people through his obedience. He he passes the test where the people fail. He is the true Israelite who trusts the Lord. And so as we trust him and his obedience for us and his punishment for us, so we can be encouraged Because the promised land for us is not in our obedience, it is through his. It's our call to trust that. It's been an encouragement, but it's been a challenge as well. Because we're great at grumbling. Not just on the M25, but generally in life. And we too easily struggle to trust and obey him. And we don't learn the lessons of history, and we make the same mistakes again and again and again, and... It goes on and on and on. This is a book for people like us. But here we find ourselves, chapter 36. It's an unusual end about a legal technicality of the inheritance of the land. And thank you to Laura for reading it and those awful names. And I guess we're asking why. Why does he finish the book like this? 
Why does it end this way? I take it in part, it's because their hope is being realized. They see the promised land. There must have been times throughout when they weren't sure if they would make it. But here they are on the edge of the land, overlooking their inheritance, ready for what's to come. There's, that's something of the, the final verse that's left ringing in our ears as the book closes out, verse 13. These are the commands and regulations the Lord gave through Moses to the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. He's brought them to the front door of the land. No doubt a mess of emotions amongst the people. A generation lost who did not trust him, but now this second generation for whom things are looking up, but much better, but, but actually still with problems. As we contrast the two generations, we need to say the second one haven't got it sorted. There's still a messiness there. It's not been hassle-free these last ten chapters. Explicitly, there have been issues again with enemies. Chapter 31, the Midianites clashes with people, with opposition to the people of God. Implicitly, there are challenges as well because they've reiterated the law again and they've spoken about sacrifices again. They've spoken about cities of refuge. Cities of refuge are six Levitical towns where, where people who have committed manslaughter can, can seek asylum. They can cl claim the right of asylum which means we're asking, why do you need six cities that can do that, aside from saying it's still going to be messy in the land? They're still going to need sacrifices. They're still going to need protection. It's still going to go wrong. And, of course, there are all kinds of things still to accomplish. Yes, there'll be rest from journeying, the relentless trudge of wilderness wandering, but, but now the scale of things is going to have to change hugely. It's going to be a whole different ball game. We're not talking an oversized campsite now. We're talking the defeat of cruel enemies. We're talking the allotment of territory for a settled people. We're talking huge building projects for new cities. There is much to do. And yet that hopefulness, that expectancy, that promise of securing and preserving an inheritance is going to be foundational to the issue in chapter 36. Because what becomes clear as the chapter unfolds I think is more contrast again between generation two and generation one. The generation who trust and who hope and the generation who didn't. I think we'll see this. We'll see a hopefulness that is coupled with obedience. So we've seen there are hopeful people, secondly, and obedient people. Let's try and dig into the account a bit. That was something of an overview so far, and hopefully to give you a bit of a background as to where we've got to, but there will be more to come of that. We'll try and work out what's going on with Zelophehad's daughters. You'll forgive me if that's how it's not pronounced. That's how I'm pronouncing it. We actually mentioned them right back at the start of the series, if you remember, in the very first talk. Um, and then they turn up again in chapter 27 of Numbers. And at first glance, it's a slightly weird family group walking onto the stage of numbers. But let's try and back up a bit to, to get the context to understand why they're so important for us. And so a bird's eye view of the previous 10 chapters. I think you'll see where we're going as we get there. Why did Zelophehad and his girls turn up? 
Why bother talking about them? Well, if you have a Bible in front of you, then do flip back to Numbers 25, and I'm going to try and give you 10 chapters or so condensed into five minutes, maybe 10. Numbers 25. The story begins before this, but it's a helpful place to jump in. Numbers 25 and verse 1. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods, so Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought into the camp a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Numbers 25, a snapshot of the faithlessness and disobedience of generation one. They disobey God. They, um, they intermingle, shall we put it, with the Moabite women. It's far more explicit than that. And pardon the pun, but that is the final nail in the coffin. If you want to read on later as to how Numbers 25 works out, then feel free. So from Numbers 25, then we get to Numbers 26. Second generation, generation two. More counting. These are the children of generation one. Generation one who did not trust on the edge of the land. Then from Numbers 26 to 27, here we go. Zelophehad's daughters appear Numbers 27, verses 1 to 4. The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machia, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names we've already had today, but the names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcar, and Terza. They came forward and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders in the whole assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and said, Our father died in the wilderness... He was not among Korah's followers who, who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. So they are the very first group we meet from generation two after the second census. And the issue they come to Moses with, five daughters... I'm going to refrain from saying, imagine the queue for the bathroom. But five daughters, they say, when we get to the land, and when we have our allocated portion of land, what happens if we've not married? If the land is just for sons, what happens to us? Why should our family name be wiped out? They've travelled all this way, longing for an inheritance, trusting God for their inheritance. Can they lose it on a legal technicality? Can they lose it because their father has died and he has no sons? That's their question. And I think the contrast is there for the first generation. This is why we begin with these women in 27. Contrast, firstly, because the first generation didn't trust God to get them to the land. We've said that already. They're trusting the Lord to provide what he's promised. There's still a long way to go, but for them it's a dead cert. It's, it's, not, it's not going to be easy. 
But they say, when we get there, we see some practicalities to work out. We see some legal loopholes. And we see some what-ifs. We trust the Lord to get us there. We want the inheritance that he's promised us. So there's the first contrast. The second is that they're not prepared to intermarry, to intermingle, which is why we started in chapter 25. It's striking. They would rather not marry and have to approach Moses and rethink the law than do what their ancestors did in 25 with the Moabite women. Zelophehad's daughters are faithful. And at that stage, Numbers 27, we're thinking, good news, generation who's trusting the Lord, generation who's inquiring of him, they're planning wisely, they're obedient. It's much harder to be faithful in areas of marriage, tempting, no doubt, to, to marry outside of what was permitted. Still an issue for many in our day, but at this Numbers 27 stage, it's all theoretical. And then something happens in Numbers 32 that changes it all, it becomes real. Numbers 32, 1 to 5, the Reubenites and Gadites who had very large herds and flocks saw that the lands of Jazar and Gilead were suitable for livestock. So they came to Moses and Eleazar the priests and the leaders of the community and said, Ataroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliale, Sibam, Nebo and Beon, the land the Lord subdued before the people of Israel are suitable for livestock and your servants have livestock. If we found favour in your eye, they said, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. And so they do. That is, the tribe of Manasseh captures and settles in Gilead, verse 39 to 42 of Numbers 32, just outside the promised land, actually. But the deal is, as long as the soldiers from the family come and help conquer the land, everyone's happy. You can have that land. It's good for your sheep. Great. Which means when we reach Numbers 36, now we see why the question matters. It's not just hypothetical. Now they have a land. Because their family has land just outside the land as it happens. It's live and it's real. And so the family heads approach Moses. And we're back in Numbers 36 and we're looking at verses 1 to 4. Hopefully you're with me. The family heads of the clan of Gilead, son of Machia, the son of Manasseh, who were from the clans of the descendants of Joseph, came and spoke before Moses and the leaders, the heads of the Israelite families. They said, when the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land as an inheritance to the Israelites by lot, he ordered you to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. Now, suppose they marry men from other Israelite tribes. Then their inheritance will be taken from our ancestral inheritance and added to that of the tribe they marry into. And so part of the inheritance allotted to us will be taken away. When the year of Jubilee for the Israelite comes, their inheritance will be added to that of the tribe into which they marry, and their property will be taken from the tribal inheritance of our ancestors. Now there is a recurring word within those verses. Did you spot it? Inheritance. Inheritance, inheritance, inheritance. If, if Numbers has 48 mentions of inheritance, 12 of them come in this chapter, a quarter of them, in chapter 36. This is a chapter about inheritance. But it turns out that Lofahad's uncles have a slightly more nuanced issue. They say, what if our nieces, our five lovely nieces, what if they marry men from another tribe? 
Do we lose the land from our tribe? And even on the year of Jubilee, every 50th year, when all land is bought and sold, that's been bought and sold, is returned to the original family, this land hasn't been bought or sold. It's been married away. In this scenario, we're going to lose land. We trust we're going to get into the land, and we want the inheritance you've promised us. And it's a good question. It feels a bit like legal minutiae, and some of us, our eyes are glazing over. I can spot you. Some of you lawyers are getting a bit overexcited. I can spot you as well. But actually, it reveals, again, something of their right concern for their inheritance. Trusting God that they will receive the promises that he's given them. How are they going to respond to this problem? What are they going to do? What's the first thing they do? Again, I think in contrast to the first generation, the first thing they do, here are people who speak to their leaders. They do exactly what they ought to have done. The passage feels striking and strange in part because of what they don't do, what doesn't happen. The leaders are not being spoken of, spoken against this time. There is no rebellion this time. They do what they were meant to do. They come and talk to the leaders that the Lord has put in charge. And so verse 5, then at the Lord's command, Moses gave this order to the Israelites. What the tribe of the descendants of Joseph is saying is right. This is what the Lord commands for Zelophehad's daughters. They may marry anyone they please, as long as they marry within their father's tribal clan. No inheritance in Israel is to pass from one tribe to another, for every Israelite shall keep the tribal inheritance of their ancestors. Every daughter who inherits land in any Israelite tribe must marry someone in her father's tribal clan, so that every Israelite will possess the inheritance of their ancestors. No inheritance may pass from one tribe to another, for each Israelite tribe is to keep the land it inherits. So the answer is there is no easy answer. But if we have a people who speak to their leaders, then we have a people who hear from the Lord. That's acknowledged in verse 5 and verse 6 and verse 10, that wisdom that Moses brings is not wisdom from Moses, it's wisdom from the Lord. There is no easy answer. The best way to deal with this legal loophole is to keep the Lofahad's daughters only marrying within their tribal clan. They're only to marry within Manasseh. And then the daughters moaned and grumbled and said, that is gross. I've got to marry my cousins? Are you serious? But they don't do that. Once again, they obey the Lord. Verse 10 says, Zelophehad's daughters did as the Lord commanded Moses. Zelophehad's daughters, Marla, Terza, Hogla, Milcar, and Noah, married their cousins on their father's side. They married within the clans of the descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in their father's tribe and clan. They're obedient. And it kind of passes us by, but if you've read all of Numbers, as you reach the end of the book, it sticks out like a sore thumb. They did as Moses said. There is no moaning or grumbling or whining or complaining or tantrums. There were no wishing they had to go back to Egypt. They're obedient. Simple obedience. And it was game over. And they lived happily ever after. And they rode off into the sunset. Well, no, that's not the case. As we said, Numbers does end a bit of a, with a bit of a dot, 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 uh, to be continued. And as the pages turn, initially things look good. 
We've got things like Jordan and Jericho and leadership to deal with. How are they going to get across the Jordan? How are they going to defeat Jericho? How's the, tr- the transition in leadership going to work? In, in Deuteronomy, in the next book, Moses preaches a blinder or three of a sermon, and then he dies, and he's gathered to his people as the Lord said he would be. After Deuteronomy comes Joshua, and in Joshua we will find the Jordan being crossed, Jericho being defeated, the land being entered, and they begin to settle. And it feels like something of a high point. But then things begin to go wrong again. In the promised land, just as in the Garden of Eden, the people of God want to do away with the word of God over them. And they walk out on him. So in the land, the people of God want to do away with the work of God, the word of God, and they walk out on him. And the people are deported from the land. They are exiled. They are ruled by foreign people. They are ruled by Babylonians and Assyrians and Persians and Romans. God promised they would be. If you walk out on me, said the Lord, you will be removed from the land. And so to be honest, Numbers 36, the legal issue with the Lofahad's daughters becomes a moot point because there is no physical inheritance. That's not there for them to worry about anymore. It's awkward. What's going on? God has promised his people a land. We've seen a faithful family who want to make sure they hold on to the land. And yet their ancestors walk out on God. And so the land is removed. It all looks so good. It looked like God had come through. It looked like the promises to Abraham were being fulfilled. They were a huge people. They were in the land that God promised them. They had started to be a blessing to the nations all around them. It was good news. But then they end up in exile and scattered and suffering outside the land. What happens to the promises to Abraham? What is the answer? I think we get a glimpse of the answer in Numbers 36, and it's there in verse 4. It's just a hint. When the year of Jubilee for the Israelites comes, and you see onto the pages of history walks Jesus. We'll come back next week to hear more about him. But as the people of God are in spiritual exile, as the people of God are ruled over by the Romans, they ought to rejoice as this man, Jesus, appears. We will look in home groups this week at Luke 4, but you'll see the way in which Jesus is painted as the one who brings the true year of Jubilee. How he seems to view himself and understand his role. And so as Jesus walks onto the pages of human history, So we see the true one who brings jubilee. Have a listen to this. It's on the screen. The people are still waiting for the fullness of the inheritance that God has promised. That fullness has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ, who is himself our jubilee. The one in whom our lost inheritance is restored to us. As our kinsman redeemer, Jesus has taken the responsibility upon himself to pay the price of our forfeited inheritance what we lost through our own sin and the sin we inherited from Adam. 
Jesus has now restored for us through his death on the cross. In him, our victory is already accomplished. It is certain, for the Lord has both promised it to us and achieved it for us on the cross. And so you see, as we finish numbers on the edge of the promised land, hopeful, but then as we move history on a bit and find them no longer in the land, despondent, we're to be a people who trust in Christ, who rejoice in Christ, a people who, despite the pain of the now, in Christ have an inheritance secured for us forever in the future. Because of his obedience, because of his death on the cross in our place, because of his resurrection to new life, so our inheritance, so the inheritance of the people of God is completely secure. So we can rejoice because of his death and resurrection. And so as we finish this series, it's appropriate that we just end by um, reading from Peter's first letter to the Christians. Uh, Christians who were suffering for their faith, suffering under Nero, more than aware of the pain of the journey, more than aware of the having been rescued and saved, but not experiencing the consummation of their salvation. More than aware of the inheritance to come as they look ahead with hope. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. Peter writes to suffering Christians, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, in the, the reality of the now, in the suffering and the pain and the journeying, we can be hopeful, humbly hopeful, because of Christ. Because we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, which is kept in heaven for us. And that is where we're going. And we can trust him, because he's faithful. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we confess to you how easy we find it to forget the reality of our inheritance. How easy we find it to get drawn into the, the daily living that makes up our week. The joys and the frustrations. We take our eyes off the inheritance the Lord Jesus won for us. We thank you for the Lophahad's daughters who who were obedient and faithful in the light of that inheritance. And so we pray that we might be a people who in light of our future inheritance are obedient and faithful as we seek to live for you. Please take our eyes off the now as we despair or as we get too caught up and drawn in. 
and lift our eyes to the inheritance of the Lord Jesus. The one who suffered, who died, who was buried, who was raised again and ascended to your right hand. Keep our eyes fixed on him, please, and all that is to come as we seek to live for him. And we thank you for him. In his name we pray. Amen.